Blog Talk Radio. From Live in the Balance, the nonprofit organization committed to advocating on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids and their caregivers, this is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at School. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs live each Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help challenging students and implement the collaborative problem solving approach in your classroom and your school. If you have a question or comment, call 646-727-2691. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about challenging kids and how we can help them. Well, hello there and welcome to today's program. Our last, I'm sorry to report, of the year 2010. Um, there will be no program on December 21st or December, excuse me, December 20th. Or 27th, um, lots of folks are going to be on vacation during those time periods, and uh, I'm one of them. Uh, and, you know, lots of folks feel like they need a vacation badly, and I'm one of them. We will, of course, pick this up again at the beginning of 2011, and of course, because it'll be the first Monday of 2011, um well, we'll begin with our um, uh, educators panel. So uh, today's our last program for 2010. We'll try to make the most of it as always. Uh, and as always, these are your 45 minutes. Uh, that's why we do this every week, to answer your questions, provide you with the support that you need, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. I'm delighted that you... Uh, have joined in on today's program, whether you've joined in live or uh, are listening to the uh, recorded version, as many, many people do. Uh, let me think of what I want to tell you. Well, I want to give you that call-in number again, 646-727-2691, um, 646-727-2691, the number you need to call to comment, ask questions, um, get the support you need. Uh, you can also, of course, as many folks do, just listen to what's going on with others who are using the collaborative problem-solving approach and hear the answers to the questions they are submitting. If you want to submit a question, whether you want it answered during the live program or um, I, I collect these, of course, like a squirrel connect, collecting nuts. And uh, this squirrel is going to be a very well-fed one this winter because the questions just keep on accumulating. So... Um, Good for you all for sending them in. Um, you can send a question electronically if you want to by using the contact form on the Lives in the Balance website. And that website is www.livesinthebalance.org. We had a very interesting discussion last week uh, with our uh, educators panel. We were talking about data. And people were saying that uh, data was... Um, the best way to help people come to recognize that, um, well, maybe they ought to be implementing collaborative problem solving in their uh, school. Um, by the way, I should mention one other thing before I get back to data, uh, but it's just as relevant. Uh, I'll be getting, I will be starting 
a new monthly web-based radio program for people who work in restrictive therapeutic facilities beginning in January. Um, you know what? I'm going to look this up real quick for you here. The first one is going to be January 12th at noon Eastern Time. Collaborative Problem Solving for Restrictive Therapeutic Facilities. A complement to our two existing programs, Collaborative Problem Solving at Home and this one, Collaborative Problem Solving at School, all brought to you by Lives in the Balance, um, the nonprofit uh, that sponsors this program and um, that is aimed to advocating to advocate on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids, their parents, their teachers, and their other caregivers. So you want to watch out for that program as well, especially I, I'm just my understanding is that a lot of people who work in restrictive therapeutic facilities have been listening to this program. Um, but now you got your own. You can still listen to this program, but now you got your own. Um, we were talking about data last week. Data. And I was... I found this interesting because we had uh, four educators on last program, as we always do on the educators panel, and we were talking about data that they could use to provide compelling information that would convince other people in their school that they ought to be using collaborative problem solving, and that is not an easy thing to do. Schools tend, not all of them, but tend to be bastions of plan A. And... Um, Sometimes it's, well, often it's hard to get people out of their plan A mentality where they are thinking that the only individual who conceivably needs to change anything is the kid. His challenging behavior has nothing to do with us goes the, uh, goes the thinking. So we don't have to change. He needs to change. The only data that we're interested in is... Uh, the fact that he's still not doing what we're telling him to do. Um, data can help people realize that, um, well, this kid's been doing rather poorly for a very long time. Data can help us realize that what we're doing now isn't working. That's why those suspensions, detentions, and expulsions are piling up. The interesting thing was people weren't necessarily talking about data, although this is becoming increasingly important in some school systems. The data that they were talking about that was emphasized least was the data on the effectiveness of a particular model. And that was surprising to me. Don't worry, there's there are data. In the, they're not quite published yet, but they're on their way. There are data indicating that collaborative problem solving is highly effective in schools. There are already existing data showing that collaborative problem solving is highly effective in outpatient treatment, inpatient treatment. Uh, there are data showing that it's highly effective in juvenile detention. Those data aren't out yet either, but they're on their way. I write this stuff up as fast as I can, but sometimes I get distracted. The data they were talking about was the more practical data, the data showing just how many suspensions this kid has had, just how many detentions this kid has had. The data telling us that all we got to do is say hello to him and he barks at us. All data telling us that 
what we're doing now isn't working. And by the way, if all we got to do is say hello to him and he barks at us, that tells us that it's not only about him. It's about us, too. I don't know. In, in your life, if you say hello to somebody and they bark at you, it's not about the relationship. Usually, yeah. So I thought it was an interesting data discussion last week. Um, let me give you that phone number again before I jump into the uh, email. Um, six. Well, hold on. No, I had it in front of me. There we go. Uh, six four six seven two seven. Two six nine one. Um, am I in a good mood today because the Red Sox signed Adrian Gonzalez and Carl Crawford? No way. Stuff doesn't matter. Am I in a good mood today because the New England Patriots beat the Chicago Bears yesterday in one of the best ways to watch a football game? Uh, me uh, in a nice, toasty living room and them playing in a snow-covered blizzard, a, a field that is snow-covered and a blizzard. Um, that's about as good as it gets for football, but even better, the Patriots won. No, that can't be why I'm in a good mood. That stuff doesn't matter. Anyways, I wouldn't admit it. What matters what we need to be passionate about, way more passionate than we are about the Patriots or the Red Sox or your other favorite home team. We need to be passionate about how we treat kids, the challenging ones in particular, because they're the ones we treat the worst and they're the ones we understand the least. I wrote a uh, In the Real World segment on this, uh, oh, maybe a year ago, but I'm still thinking about it. I cheer hard for the Patriots, but I know that's entertainment. Real life is kids, how we understand them, how we treat them, especially when they aren't meeting our expectations and are behaving in ways that we wish they weren't. Now, there's something worth being passionate about. Questions from the email pile. Here we go. Hi, Dr. Green. I have found your website and books to be very helpful in my work as a behavior analyst in the public schools. I'm still in the stages of uh, getting comfortable and familiar with the information gathering stage of collaborative problem solving. She's talking about the empathy step there. Do you have any suggestions for how to proceed with having the conversation with an eighth grade student diagnosed with PDD-NOS? That stands for Pervasive developmental disorder not otherwise specified. He is highly likely to respond with, I don't know, when asked, what's up? I'm hoping to try this approach as previous strategies have been unsuccessful and things seem to be deteriorating. Any suggestions that you have are greatly appreciated. My pleasure to be answering this question. Um, and here's my answer. The first thing I would do is forget that he's diagnosed with PDD-NOS. work with lots of kids who are not diagnosed with PDD-NOS, who are highly likely to respond to uh, when asked what's up with I don't know. I don't think PDD-NOS um, is the deal breaker there. I'm not sure that it distinguishes this student. So I, I don't know that that's a crucial part, to tell you the truth. Um, your goal 
is uh, first of all, I don't know is common. If you're if you're doing Plan B, I don't know is in your future, and like seventy to eighty percent of the time that you're doing Plan B, it's going to be an I don't know in there somewhere. Uh, lots of people, not that this emailer is one of them, but lots of people freak out over I don't know. Um, they think if he doesn't know, and well, then how are we going to solve this problem? You're going to navigate your way past I don't know. That's how. Uh, and that's not that hard. To, the, but number one goal is not to get freaked out about it. Um, I don't know why I put in the same category as silence. Now, I don't know when silence could mean a variety of different things. Um, number one on my list is um, he doesn't know. The reason he said he doesn't know is because he doesn't know. He hadn't thought about it. Maybe he used to think about it, but he maybe has become so accustomed to having his concerns blown off the table by adults who have concerns of their own that he hadn't thought about his concerns lately. So we have finally got around to asking, but uh, that doesn't mean the answer is on the tip of his tongue anymore. He said, I don't know, because he doesn't know. It may have been a long time since he's thought about it, which means we're doing him a big favor by asking him about it now. I don't know, could mean he needs time to think. If he needs time to think, we ought to give him that time to think, and the best way to do that is often for us to be quiet. If we're busy talking, and adults, you know, this is the most painful part of doing Plan B for adults. They can't stop talking. What are they talking about? They're talking about what they think the kids' concerns are. Well, that's going to make it harder for him to think about what his concerns really are. They're thinking about what their solutions are to the problem they don't understand very well yet. How can you understand a problem if you don't know what the kid's concerns are? How can you understand a problem until your concerns are on the table? How can you think of solutions yet? You can't. So... In many respects, it should be easy to be silent. It's not time to think about solutions yet. Uh, the empathy step and the define the problem step are solution-free zones. You don't start thinking about solutions till the till the invitation step, where you're brainstorming. Um, so it shouldn't be hard. Well, it is hard, but it shouldn't be not to think of solutions yet. It's too early. It's premature. And, um, well, the the main, the premium in the empathy step, when you've asked what's up, the premium is on, uh, on drilling for information well, not on having ingenious ideas about what the kid's concern might be. That's not the premium. It's not what you want to be good at yet. You want to be good at drilling so you can find out. Now, there's a few other reasons a kid might say, I don't know, and they come before you've even asked what's up. Maybe you weren't specific enough with the unsolved problem that you wanted the kid to give you information about. He's impulsive, not specific enough. Here's what that would sound like in the empathy step. I've noticed you're impulsive. What's up? You're going to get an I don't know. You're going to get a shrug. You're going to get silence. You're going to get, huh? 
I've noticed that you're lacking crucial social skills. What's up? You're going to get I don't know, or silence, or a shrug, or a look. Not going to get information, and that's what you're trying to gather in the empathy step. I've noticed um, you have a lot of rage. What's up? I don't know. Or silence, or a shrug, or a look, but no information. You want to be as specific as possible about the unsolved problem that you're inquiring about. And that usually means adding some details like who, what, where, when, with whom, over what, where, and when does it look like he's got a lot of rage, with whom, over what, where, and when does it look like he's lacking social skills. With whom, over what, where, and when is he being impulsive? One of the hardest parts for people about doing plan B is being specific about the unsolved problem. Here's what it could sound like. I've noticed that you're having a lot of trouble raising your hand without calling out answers during social studies. What's up? That just took the place of impulsive. I've noticed you get very upset with your friend Chad when he plays with Joey during recess instead of you. What's up? That just took the place of I've noticed you've had you have a lot of rage. Get the idea? So one reason we get I don't know or shrugs or silence or looks but no information is because we weren't specific enough about the unsolved problem that we were trying to get information from the kid about in the first place. Another reason, this is even before what's up, is that we weren't neutral. The beginning of the empathy step starts with a neutral observation. I've noticed that. Then you're inserting a highly specific unsolved problem, and then you're saying what's up. You're not saying, I've noticed you're trying to ruin my life. You're not saying, I've noticed you kind of want to be in jail someday. You're not saying... I've noticed you seem to take enormous pleasure in destroying our family. You're not saying that stuff because that stuff's going to make the kid stop talking. And if he's not talking, you're not gathering information. And if you're not gathering information, you're not understanding this kid's concern or perspective on this unsolved problem. And this unsolved problem will remain unsolved. Specific, neutral. We got to. Drill well, not be geniuses. Sometimes we got to be quiet and let the kid think. Sometimes we need to break the problem down into its component parts. And there's lots of unsolved problems that have many components. Writing has many components. Uh, getting ready for school in the morning has many components. Getting ready to leave at the end of the day has many components. Kids don't often think in terms of components, so when we ask them what's up, they aren't able to come up with it. So sometimes if we break the problem down into its component parts, we move past I don't know. But none of this has anything to do with TDD, NOS, or, well, I suppose it could have something to do with whether a kid has the expressive language skills to respond, but PDD, NOS doesn't tell us that. Thank you for writing in your question. And I hope that uh, the stuff I just said um, helps. That's the whole point of this program.
Shall we move on to another one? Hello, Dr. Green. I am a graduate student interning in a public high school as an adjustment counselor. Cool. Uh, I've watched your presentation and read through the site, but I do have one question. One of the first steps is saying I have noticed, and then what's up? This. What if there is no presenting problem behavior, or you don't know exactly what the problem behavior is? What do you do to get to the what's up stage? What if a child does not see the behavior as a problem or concern? Thank you for your question. I shall now answer it. Those are two questions, actually. I shall now answer both. Um, there's uh, The reason that you're filling out the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems is because of two things. You want to make sure you have the right lenses on. That's the lagging skill section. And... You want to identify these specific conditions, I call them unsolved problems, these specific conditions in which challenging behavior is occurring with this particular student. Now let me go into a little bit more detail. If you've heard me speak lately, you know that I tell people that challenging behavior occurs when two forces clash. The clash of the two forces Force number one, lagging skills. Force number two, demands for those skills. If a student is lacking skills but the environment is not demanding those skills, then the clash of the two forces does not occur. Challenging behavior does not occur. If the environment is demanding skills and a kid has those skills, then the clash of the two forces does not occur, and challenging behavior does not occur. When does challenging behavior occur? When the clash of the two forces occurs. When the demands being placed upon a student outstrip that student's capacity, skills, to respond adaptively. It's the clash of the two forces. In the unsolved problems section of the ALSUP, all an unsolved problem is, is a condition in which the clash of the two forces has occurred. If a kid is lacking the skills to sit in circle time, then during circle time, the clash of the two forces is occurring, and that probably explains why the kid is exhibiting challenging behavior during circle time. Uh, completing a writing assignment in class demands skills. If a kid is lacking those skills, then the clash of the two forces is occurring during that writing assignment, and that's why challenging behavior is occurring during that writing assignment. So what we're doing when we're filling out the unsolved problem section of the ALSIP is we are um, identifying the specific conditions in which the clash of the two forces is occurring, which means before we even try to do plan B, you know, I noticed something. I, uh, seldom do I listen to these radio programs over again, but I did the other day, and I noticed, and I just did it again, that I sniff a lot. Maybe in particular on the day that I listened to, because I don't think I've done it a lot today, but I just sniffed. I'm trying very hard not to sniff. See if I can breathe and not sniff. I think it's possible. You're filling out the out. You're, you're you're identifying lagging skills and you're identifying unsolved problems. And if you go through that exercise, I hate to call it an exercise go through that process, then you're not focused on problem behavior anymore. You're focused on the unsolved problems that are setting that problem behavior in motion. The behavior itself, I agree, is a problem, 
But the behavior itself is not the problem. The unsolved problem is the problem, setting the challenging behavior in motion. So you're not focused on behavior. In the unsolved problem section, you're focused on the unsolved problem, setting them in motion in the first place. You will likely, if you use the ALSIP as a discussion and information gathering guide, you're, you're going to have a long list of unsolved problems. I don't think you're going to be lacking things to discuss with him. The, more typically, there's so many things to discuss with him, it's hard to decide where to start. That's question number one. You're not focused on behavior. You're focused on the unsolved problems that are setting in motion challenging behavior. Next question. Well, let me give you some examples. I've noticed that um, sitting next to Billy during circle time has been tough lately. What's up? You didn't say what he was doing during circle time. You said what unsolved problem was setting in motion what he was doing during circle time. I've noticed that um, you haven't gotten a whole lot of done, lot done on your um, writing project. What's up? I didn't say anything about behavior. I said something about the conditions in which the challenging behavior was occurring. I've noticed that when it's time to end the game that you're playing during choice time and move on to math, that's been hard for you lately. What's up? Well, I'm sure that the kid is exhibiting, because you're talking with him about it, something he's doing is not in line with our behavioral expectations, but that's actually not what we're talking about. We're talking about what's setting that, what unsolved problem is setting that challenging behavior in motion in the first place. Solve the problem, you're not going to see the challenging behavior. I'm going to get to your second question in a moment, but I want to respond to something that one of our emailers uh, has emailed in about why kids say, I don't know. Uh, the emailer is saying sometimes the child does know, but will say, I don't know, because he doesn't trust the adult yet or is so upset, that would be emergency plan B, that he, probably is that he's really unable to articulate his concern. How do you help a kid come to trust you so that he'll talk to you? Uh, ask the right questions. Be neutral. Don't be punitive. You want him to talk to you, right? You want him to give you the information that you need so that this problem can get solved, right? Punitive's not going to do that. Kids love being understood. Make sure the kid knows that your goal is to understand, not to tell him what to do, not that he's in trouble, not that you're mad. You're just trying to understand. Um, trust doesn't happen overnight, though. Sometimes we adults are in such a hurry to get the kid to talk, we forget that he has good reasons for not talking to us in the first place. I don't know can mean I don't trust you yet. And you're not going to get him to trust you any quicker if you're pushing the envelope on getting to talk. Me, I'd rather find out 
why he's not talking, why he said, I don't know, or went silent, or shrugged, or uh, gave us a look. Thanks, emailer. Back to this other email. What if a child does not see the behavior as a problem or concern? First of all, once again, I wouldn't be focused on behavior. Secondly, if a kid tells us that they don't have a problem with the unsolved problem that we're trying to talk with them about, well, that is the beginning of their concern or perspective on that unsolved problem. Uh, Billy, I've noticed that during circle time, you and Tommy seem to have trouble sitting next to each other. What's up? Kid. Uh, Billy, uh, I don't have any trouble sitting next to Tommy. Well, that there's information, but it's not the end of the discussion. A lot of adults think that. They think that if the kid says he doesn't have a problem with what we're trying to talk with him about, the discussion's over. No, he's given us information already. Here's how we'd keep going. You, Billy, you don't think you and Tommy are having trouble sitting next to each other during circle time? Uh-uh. Well, you mean, um, you want me to tell you why I was thinking that y'all were having trouble sitting next to each other during circle time? Okay. Well, you're talking a lot to each other. You're pushing each other. You're, um... Stuff that I noticed was going on. Yeah, but we don't have a problem with it. Oh, so the talking to each other and the pushing each other during circle time, that's not bothering you guys. Uh-uh, we're having fun. I mean, he's getting his concern on the pre- or perspective on the table here, right? I mean, you have a concern or perspective. That's the next step. That's the define the problem step. That's his concern or perspective so far. We could keep going. I noticed, Billy, that when you were sitting next to Susie, you you, you and Susie didn't talk much and uh, didn't push each other. No. How come? Susie's not as much fun as Tommy. So Tommy's more fun than Susie, huh? Yeah, Tommy's my friend. Got it. So when you're sitting next to Tommy, it's a little harder for you to pay attention to what we're doing in circle time, I guess, because you're talking with him and pushing each other. Yeah. Do you think that's true, Billy? Um, Sitting next to Tommy makes it a little harder for you to participate like you usually do in circle time? Maybe. Well, what is it about sitting next to Tommy? He's my friend. I know, but you got other friends in your class that you sit next to just fine during circle time. How come uh, it's harder when you're sitting next to Tommy? He and I just like to talk and fool around. Look at all the information we're getting here, even though he started with, I don't have a problem with that. Don't let I don't have a problem with that deter you. And also, sticking with the me interp- my literal interpretation of this question, the question reads, what if a child does not see the behavior as a problem or concern? We're not so focused on behavior. We're focused on the unsolved problem. Not that we're allergic to talking about behavior. The kid may need us to talk about behavior so he knows what we're talking about, but behavior is not the primary focus. 
And if he doesn't see the behavior as a concern, I'm betting you do. That's why you're raising it for discussion. He doesn't need to see it as a problem. He needs to take into account the fact that you do. And the discussion will go on. pauses me checking email here. Uh, another emailer, you might have to acknowledge that you got off to a difficult start if the kid doesn't talk to you, and you'd like to start over and do things a different way. Let's face it, often plan B is done for the first time when an adult and a kid already have an adversarial relationship with each other. So he may not be expecting plan B here. This is He, he may be waiting for you to lower the plan A boom Um, he may, may take a little time before he comes to believe that you're really doing things differently here. He knows what he's used to. He knows what history has taught him. We have time for one more email for the year 2010 feels a little bit funny to be talking about that on December 13th. Usually people don't start saying, I'll see you next year, you know, till it's December 20-something. Here we are, December 13th, and uh, we're already up to our last email of 2010. I have a student in my grade one class who has been diagnosed ADHD. That's nice. Has been diagnosed ODD, Oppositional Defiant Disorder. That's nice. Is on the cusp of autism, we are retesting right now, and also takes antipsychotic meds for psychotic breaks. I'd like to see that before you convince me that it's a psychotic break. He also has a severe speech delay, now you're talking my language, and fine motor control issues, now you're talking my language, because now we're talking skills, not diagnoses. I'm going to assume, though, that the ADHD part means he's also inattentive, maybe because of his severe speech delay, but we don't know that, impulsive and hyperactive, but that those are the behaviors he's exhibiting. ADHD brings a whole bunch of lagging skills to the table that we'd want to know more about. To further exacerbate the issue, he is... Oh, hold on. Oh, yeah, he's in a French immersion class where all of his learning is done in a language not spoken at home. Oh, my. And he's got a severe speech delay? His behaviors are escalating, and refusal of everything seems to be our norm. Well, now that's starting to add up, isn't it? The other students are now aware, and he is maintaining less and less friends. Oh, boy. Wonder if the demands of the environment are outstripping this kid's capacity to respond adaptively. That's why he's ODD. That's why he's not looking too good. That's all ODD really tells you when he's when demands are placed on him that outstrip his capacity to respond adaptively. He pitches a fit. He refuses to do what he's told. He defies adult rules and requests. Good. Now we know what he's doing. But more importantly, we've got some information here telling us why he's doing it. Parents are desperate and do not know what to do. At school, the level of noncompliance is extremely frustrating. Well, not just for the adults, I'm sure. Not to mention the aggressive behaviors he is now exhibiting. Spitting, 
throwing scissors, books, etc. Oh, he's, he's a spitter. He's a thrower. He's a spitter thrower. Now that we know what he's doing, and not that that's not bad, but uh, I mean, we don't want that happening. We don't want to keep throwing scissors, but if we want him to stop throwing scissors, we better figure out when the clash of the two forces is occurring. And I think we have a pretty good sense. We'll need to be we'll need to be more specific than we've got so far. I'm going to go back to the email. We have begun to introduce sensory toys, a stress ball, and social stories to help them understand what his day and task looks like. That's great, letting him know what's coming, but not if he can't do it. He is so inconsistent that nothing works for a long period of time. When I try to problem-solve with him, he shuts down completely and refuses to talk, turning his body away from me. I wonder if that's that severe speech delay coming back to haunt us. So how do I do Plan B with a child who will not even engage in any conversation? Well, I think it has a lot to do with what we maybe you already talked about today, how you're trying to do Plan B with this guy. But if he has a severe speech delay, there may be some other programs in the uh, listening library, the audio programming section of the Lives in the Balance website that you may want to listen to as well because there's some other things that you might want to consider when you're trying to do Plan B with a kid who is having difficulty responding. I don't know if he will not engage. I wonder if he can or I wonder if he is hes in grade one. Boy, that's early. I hate to see it happen that early. But he may have already lost faith that the adults who are putting demands on him for skills that he cannot muster. Geez, I hope he hasn't lost faith yet that we'll figure that out. But better yet, let's figure it out and we'll get his faith back. But that could be another reason he's not talking. I know he's got a severe speech delay, but he I hope he hadn't thrown in the towel on adults being able to figure this stuff out. A grade one, that would be a very early time for that to happen. Also, I'm going back to the email. If he ends up being ASD, I think that means autism spectrum disorder, does your theory work and approach in theory work the same for an autistic child? Thank you very much for emailing. I'm not giving you a hard time here. I'm always grateful for the emails and always happy to answer the questions. But um, uh, we already know enough about him. I'm not sure that we know enough about him. I, we'd want some more clarity. Using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems, I want to know what other skills he's lacking. I want to know what other unsolved problems are setting in motion spitting and throwing and refusing to do what he's told. I'm betting that some of those are unsolved problems that would not be well addressed through merely social stories and sensory toys. Those are fine interventions, but only for things that social stories and sensory toys work for. So social stories and sensory toys are not going to work for things that social stories and sensory toys do not work for, but we need our list of unsolved problems, and we need to get to know this kid through the prism of lagging skills. I know about some of his lagging skills, but I'm betting there are even more. We need to know him. Then we can help him. We can't help him until we know him. And that goes for whether he ends up being categorized as autism spectrum disorder or not. 
So whether he ends up on the ASD side of the cusp or the not ASD side of the cusp that he's on, uh, the cusp is not going to be the deal breaker here. The diagnosis is not the deal breaker. How did we become so diagnostically oriented? I uh, did a talk on uh, Thursday and another one on Friday at um, for the American Academy of Pediatrics, to people who were, well, pediatricians. <laughs> and um, what was one of the biggest things I told them? The biggest favor a pediatrician can do for parents who are worried about their challenging kid is not to tell them what the kid's diagnosis is. Because when you tell people what the diagnosis is, all you really tell them is what the kid is doing. Not why he's doing it, not when he's doing it. When is unsolved problems? Why is lagging skills? That's the important parts. What he's doing, this kid who we're hearing about here, is a spitter thrower. Why is he doing it? He's lacking skills. When's he doing it? When those skills are being demanded of him. Um, doesn't matter what part of the cusp he's on. He's lacking skills and has unsolved problems. We've got to figure out what they are, and then we've got to start helping him. We gotta decide which unsolved problems we're working on first. The rest we're gonna put in plan C. The ones we're working on, those are plan B. Those are our big fish. We're gonna fry our big fish first, leave our little fish for another day. We're gonna solve problems with him collaboratively so that he's a participant in the process and so that he acquires the skills he's lacking. Doesn't matter what cusp he's on. Doesn't matter what his diagnosis is. It matters that we adults organize the effort, figure out why, lagging skills, figure out when, unsolved problems, start solving problems collaboratively instead of unilaterally. And if we were to start doing all of that a whole lot more often, then we'd have a lot fewer challenging kids, and the challenging kids that we did have would be doing a whole lot better than they are. And that... Well, thank you for emailing. But I think that's it for the year 2010 for collaborative problem solving at school. Um, been a fun year, and I am so grateful to those of you who listen in, and there are many of you at this point. I continuously strive to make the program as useful for you as possible. And I'm looking forward to doing it some more in 2011, as well as to all of the initiatives that are coming down the pike from Lives in the Balance. So um, I want to wish you a wonderful holiday. Some folks, their holiday's already over, but some folks, their holiday has yet to come. Have a great new year. And do listen in for our first program of the year. It's going to be another, as I mentioned earlier, um, educators panel. Hope 2010 ends well for you, and that 2011 is wonderful. And I look forward to being right there along with you. 
so that we can help them and understand them better than we can now. Take care. And here's the cliche. Talk to you next year. Bye.